Okay, judgment and punishment of deeds is not a uniquely New Covenant reality. And I don't have time to explain that, but if, if, think about this. Okay, so here's 1 Kings 8, 31, 32. This is when Solomon was talking to the Lord and he was declaring to the people and getting ready to dedicate the temple. Look at what it says. If a man sins against his neighbor and is made to take an oath, and he comes and takes an oath before your altar in this house, then hear in heaven and act and judge your servants, condemning the wicked. How? By bringing his way on his own head and justifying the righteous by giving him according to his righteousness. So way back when Solomon was dedicating the temple, and this is a hard concept to get in our heads when we've had a a, a disconnected relationship with the Lord and we've tried to make it feel and sound meaningful by calling it a grace relationship and by saying Jesus substituted for our life and sin and all this kind of mechanical stuff that doesn't leave you with any kind of heart-to-heart connection or any kind of relationship. The reality is it matters whether or not you and I walk in a righteous way, or we don't. It matters because we are in relationship to a holy and righteous God, not one who wants to exclude us because of that or punish us because of that, but one that can't relate in another way. And if you remember, when we talked about wrath, and we talked about God's wrath being the the action of His love against those, including us, if we try to do it, that want to hold on to righteousness from unrighteousness. We want to get God to dumb heaven down so we don't have to actually be transformed. And and so here's the deal, but look at this. The connection is very much with what what is going on in life. It's not a, an edict that God throws down on top of somebody as a judgment. So to read it again, it says... Uh, if a man sins against his neighbor and is made to take an oath, and he's talking, of course, about here at the altar in the, te- in the t- temple. We know that that's been expanded now because he lives in us. And he comes and he takes the oath before your altar in this house. Then here in heaven and act and judge your servants, condemning the wicked by bringing his way on his own head, not by concocting some kind of civil or remote punishment. Okay, And then second, justifying the righteous by giving him according to his righteousness. Now, I said this wasn't only a, a, a New Testament concept or an Old Testament, so there's the Old Testament version. Here's the New Testament version. This isn't something you get preached on very much, especially not in Western evangelical, grace-oriented, Pentecostal or whatever. You know, It says, therefore, we also have as our ambition, whether at home or absent, to be pleasing to him. Earlier in this, this section here, if you back up a little bit into 7 and 8, Paul is talking to the Corinthians it's that section where he says, some say, I follow Paul, I follow Paulus, all this kind of stuff. And so Paul is describing the legitimacy of his own apostolic ministry. All right? But he also says, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. That's everybody. That's not just the people that didn't accept Jesus before they died. We must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may be recompensed for his deeds in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. This is a New American Standard. You know, I don't really like the language. It seems awfully complicated to me. So I called up the Young's Literal Translation. Yoda, speak to us. Okay. Uh, Crazy you are. All right. Now, there's a Behoveth in there, and so I'm just going to... Not comment on behoveth, but the rest of it's pretty straightforward. For all of us, it behoveth 
to be manifested before the tribunal of Christ. Now that stirs up some interesting imagery right there. The tribunal of Christ. Hmm. Think about that. Okay. Uh, sorry. For all of us, it behooves to be manifest before the tribunal uh, of the Christ. That each one may receive the things done through the body in reference to the things that he did, whether good or evil. Now, again, I, I don't have the skill level right at this moment, nor do I have the time tonight to try to make an absolute ironclad case on this. But I know I lived all my life thinking that if I was to even think about judgment being related to my deeds after I was born again and after Jesus had substituted for me and after I was no longer being seen for any of the things I did, I had no place to put it at all. But that's what it says. Uh, the one thing that makes this make sense is when we quit thinking about this in abstract legal terms and start thinking of it relationally. And one of the things that David did was he bridged the elements of the law and the new relational stuff that was coming. He did it through worship. You guys remember, right, that uh, on, was it Mount Gibeah or something like that over there? They were still doing the sacrifice in the law, but David had people singing and, and dancing 24 hours a day at the temple. And, and, and so he, he bridged this in a lot of ways. He had a real intimate relationship with the Lord. It wasn't just mechanical. It wasn't just governmental. It was about, Lord, don't take, you know, cleanse me with hyssop and don't take your spirit from me. So here's Psalms 28. And I just skipped the other ones and went straight to Young's literal. Unto thee, O Jehovah, I call my rock. Be not silent to me, lest thou be silent to me. And I have been comp uh, compared with those going down to the pit. Hear the voice of my supplication in my crying unto thee, in my lifting up my hands towards thy holy oracle. Draw me not with the wicked and the workers of iniquity, speaking peace with their neighbors and evil in their heart. Okay, in other words, speaking peace, you know, saying peace, peace with their neighbors, but then conniving behind them or plotting wickedness against them. You got it? In other words, hypocrites, evil, intense, and so on. Draw me not with the wicked workers, speaking peace with their neighbors and evil in their hearts. Give to them according to their acting and according to the evil of their doings, according to the work of their hands. Give to them, return their deed to them, for they attend not to the doing of Jehovah and unto the work of his hands. It's relational. It's not just sitting there abstractly thinking. It's choosing to, 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 to go your own way. It's, it, he throweth them down, he doth not build them up. Even the throw them down thing, in a lot of other translation, that stuff starts being called, he condemns them, or he does all this kind of stuff. But it's, it's physical, physical, visceral, relational. That's all I'm asking us to, to understand. That from the beginning, God wanted and was in a relationship with people. And when we think of punishment and we think of it in a judicial model that we inherited from Calvin and, and in our Western culture, we miss the point. We miss the point totally, okay? Um, Blessed is Jehovah, for he hath heard the voice of my supplications. Jehovah is my strength and my shield, in him my heart trusted, and I have been helped, and my heart exalts, and with my song I thank him. So the issues surrounding judgment and punishment are relational issues, not legal issues. When people back away from their relationship with the Lord, or when they begin to neglect and, and for instance, what it say, um, 
they attended not to the doing of Jehovah and unto the work of his hands. So just think relational. Okay, we'll, we'll get into this more. There's no way to get away from it. We've got to do, you know, look at this stuff. So what I wanted to do, and, it, and I was going to take a little bit more time doing this tonight, but we've talked about this a lot, so I'm just going to sow it in your heart. Where does punishment fit in the nature of the new covenant? So here are the, the criteria that we've been looking at in the new covenant. And uh, I think I'm going to take a couple minutes and introduce a little interesting topic. Maybe not. We'll see. Uh, first criteria. I will put my law into their minds and I will write them on their hearts. Where does punishment fit in there? Okay. I, now, I could. I mean, maybe you have it in your heart and you rebel against it and you think, okay, you're going to get punished. That's, that's, that's about as far as I could put it. I don't think inherently the effort of writing the law in your heart and putting it in your mind is designed to make you make a choice to obey it or not. It's saying that the motivation of your heart and mind is to obey. So this is a relational step forward of the thing that we saw in the past. Does that make sense? All right. So I don't personally think punishment logically fits in that criteria very well. Because it's a relational thing. Second, and I will be their God and they shall be my people. And these are both that directive kind of word that I talked about when we looked at it in the first place. In other words, this is a this is an event that was done by the choice of God, and this is an event done by the choice of God. Eris, done, finished. So again, with God being their God and them being his people, it doesn't lend itself to punishment. Not that aspect of the covenant. And they shall not teach everyone his fellow citizen, everyone his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for all will know me from the least to the greatest of them. Okay, there's another one. There's not going to be a lot of ignorant disobedience going on out there because the law is written in your heart. It's in your mind. You're God's kid, and he's your father, and he is taking responsibility for you to know that. Um. Baxter Kruger's, one of his favorite verses is in John 17. It's down toward the end, around 22, 23, 20, something like that, uh, where Jesus says, Father, I have made you known to them, and I will make you known. And he pointed out in a powerful way when it finally struck my heart, Jesus is taking responsibility for you knowing the Father. That's not an effort put out by the divine word of the Father to try to put you in a situation where you need to be punished. That's an effort he's making so that you can know the Father and know you're loved. Right? All right. Four, I will be merciful to their iniquities and I will remember their sins no more. All right. Between those two phrases... How do you slide punishment in there <laughs> as an intent of God or even as a, as a contingency of God? I don't think so. Yeah, I don't think so. Okay, so for I'll be merciful to their iniquities. I went back to Jeremiah and I looked at it because I was fascinated by the fact that, that in um, most of the Bibles I read, in Jeremiah says, I will, um, I will be merciful or I will forgive. He doesn't say merciful. It says I will forgive their iniquities. And their sins I'll remember no more. Um, so anyway, there, there's a story to tell there, and I've got it's a 30, I, it deserves more than thirty seconds, but it's kind of fun. So if you go in your Bible and you read Jeremiah 
um, back there, 32, where this is, it, it'll, it'll read differently on two fronts. It'll read differently there. It'll say, I'll forgive their sins. And then if you back up to verse 9 of Hebrews 8, it says something about, uh, I'm not going to make a covenant like the ones I made with Israel. When I led them by the hand out of Egypt, and they broke my covenant, and I didn't care for them, or if you read it in the New Living, I turned my back on them, or I rejected them, and all those kind of things. If you go back to Jeremiah, it doesn't say that. It says uh, it's not going to be a covenant like the ones when I put, uh, took the hand of Israel and led them out of Egypt, because I was their husband. And I found out, just, and I don't even know why this is important, it's just fascinating, Maybe let you guys know I study some. Um, I found out that the uh, version that the writer of Hebrews quoted is the Septuagint version, the Greek version of the Old Testament, which was the primary source in, uh, in the New, New Testament writing time. But the Hebrew version of that does talk about God being a husband. And so again, even the core of this idea, it's not just a legal mercy being granted, and it's not just a legal forgiveness being granted. It's a relational thing. I was your husband. The violation of that first covenant was adultery. It was a breaking of relationship. And he's put one here together that won't be broken because he crafted it with his own son. It's a big difference. There's probably a lot to teach about that. I don't know, but I'm going to dig into it. It sounds fun. All right. So then how should we think about punishment? How should we think about it? And the reason I ask that question, and I'm not just trying to be frivolous about it, the reason I ask that question is because we've had some really, really good discussion over the last few weeks and listening to Danny's video and stuff. We've had some amazing discussion about, and, and, and there's been this kind of <laughs> thing going on in us. But when somebody does something horrible, when somebody does something horrible like that, what do you do when you catch the guys that did it? Don't they have to pay? I just faced a situation this, this, this week where I, I had to uh, dive into the court system on behalf of somebody. And it, it felt like the only option available was to seek on behalf of this person punishment for someone else to, to make it work. So I'm not saying it's easy. But what I am saying is that we live in a covenant that is fueled from a different culture. And it really is fueled from that culture. Our culture is fueled from our history, from economics, from capitalism, from things like that. The new, the new covenant is fueled by the sacrificial blood of Jesus that, that cost him his life, but did not prevent his life from, from reigning supreme. The resurrection is so unbelievable. It's so unbelievable. We don't know the significance of it. We really don't. And so we've got a purpose in our mind, some way to think about things like this. And this is why I was so excited about the concept of unpunishability. There's another concept going on in here. Uh, Dave over there and I have had lots of good conversation about the relationship between our behavior or the lack of it, uh, our behavior and our um, identity. And um, we live in a culture where people say, so what do you do? And they're really asking, who are you? <laughs> and, and so th I think this is one of those deals, too, about punishment. A person behaves badly, and we, we have names for that. You know, uh, Vic and I were watching a TV show the other day called Breakout Kings. 
and it's a, it's a, if you've never seen it, it's not too bad. And um, anyway, there's some convicts that are working for the U.S. Marshal's Office to chase prisoner. But there's a lot of reference in that, that TV series over and over again about, well, cons can't do this, and cons can't do that, and cons can't do this. And, and they're all identity statements or identity limitations based on the behavior that they had and the, the judicial part of the end of it. So anyway, I've been on the lookout for ways to help us alleviate that tension and to try to exercise faith in this concept of punishment not fitting in the New Covenant. And if it doesn't fit in the New Covenant, and we're a New Covenant body of believers, it shouldn't fit here. So we really shouldn't punish people. But sometimes it seems unjust. Okay, so anyhow, um, in the midst of this instruction of everything down here that Paul was doing, I have been reading... I recently got a hold of, I had it for a long time, my Kindle, but I recently got a, a real physical copy of N.T. Wright's New Testament. And there's some really fresh, wonderful interpretation. And if you don't know who N.T. Wright is, he's one of the probably what would you say? Top five, at least, New Testament scholars in the world. He's an Anglican guy, and he's uh, wonderful. And if you ever just want, it's, uh, he's written about, 500 books. He's very prolific in that respect. But anyway, there's a passage of Scripture in his translation that helps me think about punishment the way Solomon did. But he brings it into the New Covenant thing. So let me read this to you. Um, If anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, grass, or straw, well, everyone's work will become visible, because the day will show it up, since it will be revealed in fire. Then the fire will test what sort of work everyone has done. And if the building work that someone has done stands the test, they will receive reward. If someone's work is burned up, they will be punished. By bearing the loss, they themselves will be saved, however, but only as through a fire. Let me read it again. Okay. If the building work that someone has done stands the test, they will receive a reward. Remember Jesus says, Behold, I come quickly. My reward is with me. Okay. If someone's work is burned up, they will be punished by bearing the loss. The loss is not the punishment. The loss is the reaction between a work that is made of wood, hay, and stubble being tested by the fire that is God. According to the last verse in Hebrews chapter 12. The punishment is bearing the loss. Now the word there is this really long Greek word, the, the lexical root is zimio, and if you read the definition of it, it says to suffer loss, to be punished. So it's all, you know, so what, what uh, N.T. Wright did is he got both concepts in there in that one word. They will be, a lot of translations say they will suffer loss, but it doesn't have that <clears throat> to it. They will be punished by bearing the loss, not punished by the act of the fire. The act of the fire is what every man, woman, and child is going to face. 
Now, I really don't have time tonight to go into that. <laughs> but we, we've been, we've been uh, tiptoeing up to uh, our understanding of, of judgment and hell for a long time. And we're really close. We've got to go there. But we're going we're gonna to take a, a dip into healing, and then we're going to have that special service on the uh, 22nd, and then again on the 24th, and then probably after that. And I'm not making a super promise on this, but uh, probably after that, it's time for us to look at what the Bible teaches about hell as punishment or what the Bible doesn't teach about hell as punishment and uh, and put our big boy pants on and see what it says. <laughs> so anyway, do you guys see the significance of this? We don't, for instance, Jim, we don't have to, we don't have to look at the scripture and feel like we've got to hide from the areas where it says, you know, that there's punishment there. But we can look with, with a, a, look at it in the context and say, was the punishment what we would normally think of being a judicial affliction from God on somebody? Or was it what Solomon said, which Lord, let their deeds, you know, lift the grace off of the protection and let that happen. And then he goes on to say, like in, in there, if you go back in, in, um, in Kings and read that, he says stuff like, you know, if, if we're overthrown by an enemy and the people turn to your tabernacle, turn to your altar and start praying, well, cause your, your favor to fall on them and them to be released and to come home. Or if the land is under drought because of sin and the people sincerely turn to you and lift their hands and place their face toward this altar, then heal their land and cause the rains to come. It's a reactive, interactive thing and it's not a judicial remote thing. And uh, one thing that I'm, I'm excited about is that I believe that you guys are close, I'm close, to being able to not relate to one another and to relate to the new people that God's going to bring into our midst in a remote judicial way. What kind of relationship is that? <laughs> you know, we're going to be able to love one another. We're going to be able to have patience for one another. We're going to be able to not have that internal trigger where we've got to seek justice at a remote, abstract level through punishment or judgment. And we're going to get a chance to just hold our tongue and take it before the Lord when we want to jump out and make things balance right away. Because they don't always balance right away. But they do balance. Eventually, I remember a statement in the shack that I thought was cool. When uh, in the movie, in the book, wherever, when Mac was uh, going up with Papa, who had taken on a masculine form, and they were going to find Missy's body, and he finally got about a third of the way there. They were just getting ready to uncover the grave, and Papa started talking to him about forgiving the guy, and Mac was wrestling with it, wrestling with it, and he and he just screamed out, and this is what everyone in this room has to deal with when we think about unpunishability and justice. He said, so what he did is just going to get away with it? Is that how you were hurt? And God said, nobody gets away with anything. If we would believe that, 
And let me tell you why it's important for us to be cognitive about that, to be thinking about it intentionally and to study it out intentionally. Because the version of the gospel that's totally substitutionary, the version of the gospel where Jesus is this remote figure in a long time ago back on a hill outside of Jerusalem, he won this class action suit against sin, and now we all get the letter in the mail. And if we'll just open the letter, just open the letter and it'll be yours. There's no relationship in that. Plus, I'll tell you what, there's no transformation. There's no transformation. I was listening to Paul Washer uh, preach the other day, and I don't know how I got it on my feet, but I did. He's a, a reformed guy, real adamant. And he was lecturing his folks about the sinner's prayer. Don't just stop at the sinner's prayer. If somebody's life doesn't change, you've got to spend time with them. You can't just get them up to the altar and think because they said that and invited Jesus into their heart. You know, even they know their own theology doesn't work. It's relational. It's relational. But the, the, con, the, 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 the urgency in us to demand punishment, to balance the scales of justice, is partly because we've all grown up in a gospel that's remote and secondhand instead of relational. And we're being called out of it. And a bunch of people are being called into a gospel that is relational and, uh, it doesn't mean that there isn't a substitutionary component to what Jesus did, and it doesn't mean that, that uh, it's not okay to pray a prayer, but those things in and of themselves do not depict the gospel. The gospel is a relationship of God becoming us and coming down here to be with us, finding the place of our deepest lostness and blowing it up from the inside. And now we participate in that. And not only that, we are given the ministry of reconciliation so then we can beg someone like an ambassador. Be reconciled to God. Be reconciled. That ministry of reconciliation that the Apostle Paul talked about in Second Corinthians chapter 5 does not begin with an inventory of personal failure. It begins with the declaration that God was in Christ, reconciling the world to himself, not counting those that inventory of personal failure against you. Therefore, we say, be reconciled. And that's our call. And we have the capacity to do it if we will. Amen? Okay. Sorry, we used up our time for the Q&A. <laughs> okay. God bless. Father, thank you. Thank you for taking such great uh, disciplined patience to walk us into something that has been true and we've been beneficiaries of it for all of our lives, and especially all of our Christian lives. But uh, because of all the different formulas and simplifications and everything, we just uh, we didn't realize how special the relationship was that we were in, and we didn't realize the authority, even though it's written plainly in Scripture, that we carry to be able to loose people from the lies and the, and the failures and to release forgiveness and do all that kind of stuff. So, Lord, we are uh, eager, sons and daughters, to be able to understand how to do that. And we give ourselves to you for that purpose. In Jesus' name, amen.